Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Once again, this is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm joined by Joe Boot and Nathan O'Black, as usual, and we're also very pleased to have Dr. Aaron Rock with us today. Aaron was able to uh, slip through a, uh, a waiting ambush, lowered down the side of a building in a basket, <laughs> and he's, uh, he's joining us uh, on, on today's episode. So we're really uh, delighted to have you here, brother. Well, thanks. I'm I'm happy to be part of this, and you're not even making that up. I feel like that's exactly what's happened <laughs> in the last few days. But glad to be on the show with you, brothers. Yeah, that's a pleasure, uh, Aaron. For those of you who have not uh, not had a chance to encounter uh, him before, he's been on the show a couple of times. He's the Ezra Institute Fellow for Church Leadership, and uh, we're here today to talk about an issue that uh, that affects all of life, but has particular relevance and uh, urgency for the church, and uh, that's the question of unity and division. We're going to get into our topic in just a moment, but Nate's got an announcement first. We've got some divisive people on this podcast, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> or so I've read. <laughs> that wasn't well, we my announcement. Brick, so. <laughs> it, it, it's, the word is divisive. Is yeah. it? Device <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and, Nate, and, let's, and let's and and tomato and wrath yeah. <laughs> and monograph. monograph. <laughs> John Cooper helped us out with that. It's like uh, when you yeah. when you help your kids learn their long division. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what I what I was going to mention is something I've uh, I've brought up the last few episodes, but it's uh, an upcoming program. That will be running the H. Evan Runner International Academy. It's coming up June fifth to the fifteenth in Golden, British Columbia. And uh, if you if you uh, follow us, you know it's our most comprehensive training program, and uh, it's designed to equip students and young professionals with a biblical worldview and a cultural apologetic. And uh, in recent weeks, we've had a handful of scholarship donations come in, which means we now have several. Uh, delegates that are able to apply for the program because of the help that's been sent their way. So we're very pleased to have that. And uh, we've got several emerging politicians and lawyers and educators uh, that are looking to sign up. And something that's become increasingly clear to many of us, and I'm sure many of you, uh, through the present crisis is that in Canada and uh, the United States as well, there are many Christians working in the field of politics and medicine and law uh, that don't have a distinctly Christian worldview. And in many cases, it's been clear that they're very statist in their thinking. It's clear that they have no idea about the principles of sphere sovereignty. And uh, all that to say, um, we hope you would sign up for the program, for our program uh, at EzraInstitute.com, uh, but also consider sponsoring a delegate. And you can email us at info at EzraInstitute.ca to learn how to do that. 
So Nathan, you're saying that um, uh, if somebody <laughs> wants to sponsor uh, a student through the program, that's right. They can do that. They can they can contact they can get, us. Yeah, they to can do contact that. us. Yeah. Are, and, and are you saying that there are a number of scholarships currently available that people can apply for, that's or are they right. taken right now? No, there are a handful that people can apply for. So if you'd like to do that, you can you can email us as well. Same address, info at ezrainstitute.ca. Okay, so apply, and uh, maybe you can win a scholarship for the program. That's right. That's right. Awesome. That's, that's on the table. Yeah. All options are on the Great, table. Great, because I think that's Ryan wants to come. <laughs> well, <laughs> he could use it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, thanks, Nate. All right, we're looking forward to that uh, coming up this summer. Okay, so Joe, Aaron, uh, as we mentioned... Our theme today is unity and division, and this is a uh, these are these are some some terms that have been thrown around a bunch. These are some terms that uh, people online have accused uh, both of you and both of our organizations, along with uh, with other various undesirables, <laughs> of uh, of being divisive, of participating in division and. There's a, uh, there, there's just a, just a question. It, it goes for the, for a large part undefined. Uh, what, uh, what that division is, mm-hmm. is over. What are we, uh, what are we uniting over? What are we meant to be uniting or dividing over? Um, that, that seems to me to be a, a pretty fundamental, uh, question, uh, that might make the difference between, faithful or unfaithful division or faithful or unfaithful mm-hmm. unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we can begin, uh, begin this section by just talking about what is, what is division, uh, what is unity um, bi- biblically understood? Yeah, well, I, I can comment on that. I mean, obviously we have examples in, in Scripture where, um, you know, Paul and Barnabas didn't always get along, so sometimes there's personality conflicts between people. And uh, sometimes when we're in difficult situations, the um, the reality is, is that personalities conflict. The way we express ourselves can conflict. There's also cultural conflicts that exist between people. When people from different cultural backgrounds have conversations, you know, things can sort of be lost in translation there can be division on the level of church strategy or ministry strategy. There can be division over how funds are spent. But right now, I, I would see the, the fight that we're in fundamentally as a fight that revolves around authority, a fight that revolves around who, who actually is fundamentally in charge of all of life. And, you know, one of the most critical passages in the New Testament that addresses the issue of unity among Christians is Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And, and right out of the gates in John 17, Jesus says, since you have given him authority over all flesh, this is in reference to the Son. So it's the Son speaking of the Son there. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, this is foundational to our worship an acknowledgement of the lordship of Christ. This is foundational to our understanding of Christ's role in creation. Christ is not just king of the church. You know, you go to Colossians chapter one, he's king of all thrones, all principalities, all authorities. 
He has authority over everything. And as we have pushed back, for instance, against the state's intrusion upon our worship as a Christian church, one of the fundamental theological reasons why we do that is not because we necessarily disagree about the virility of the virus, but because we disagree about who has authority to make those decisions. And we, we would say that we don't believe that the, the state has been granted authority by God to determine the boundaries within which God's people gather for worship or ministry. So we push back against that. Now, the particular words that I might use may not be well-received by a person with maybe a, a softer disposition, for example. I get that. There can be a, a difference of personality, a difference of how we express ourselves. Some some people are a little more edgy. They're a little bit more bold. They're a little bit more abrupt in their language. But I, I, I'm not actually seeing that in the current milieu. I see a clear divide between those that are willing to speak to the authority of Christ over creation, including the state, including the church, including political institutions, medical institutions, educational institutions, courts, etc. And I would say those that I would now consider our opponents, and I really wish they weren't, but unfortunately they've become that. It's not that they just have a different tone. They have a very different message. They seem very comfortable with, with this, what I would call the statist message which is comfortable granting authority over the worship and ministry of the church to whatever given premier happens to be governing your province or to the prime minister of Canada. So um, that that's kind of my thinking on the unity issue. I think the disunity is actually rooted in a, a, a very different theological understanding of what it means for Christ to be Lord and how that manifests and expresses itself in the various institutions and aspects of Canadian culture. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things uh, that uh, I've been reflecting on, Aaron, as, uh, as you know, we've been sort of confronting these, um, uh, these sort of charges of division and divisiveness and, you know, breaking up churches and so on and so forth um is that fundamentally the this is centered around a particular message about the the lordship of christ i mean uh, none of us have been want touring churches <laughs> sowing division no uh we've just been trying to be faithful in our own stations in our own uh callings and um calling it as we see it in terms of uh, the role and authority of Christ, and I was I was reflecting a bit on church history. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, already just a couple of illustrations in the in the Newer Testament. There, I was thinking about the fact that you know the the the, the movement forward historically in the life of the church has often been the product of some kind of division. Um, you know, you go back to 1054 and uh, the, the great schism uh, in the church, um, the patriarch of Constantinople, uh, Constantinople when he was executed. and uh, <laughs> Executed. <laughs> he wasn't executed. He was excommunicated. Uh, One of those Freudian uh, slips I've heard so a bit, much a bit, about. A bit of a Freudian yeah. slip. Let's keep that in there. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's do that. Yeah. And uh, uh, he started the, the, the great schism that created... The, the you know the the major division 
in the in the church between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, uh, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. And um, whilst no Christian would rejoice in the division of the church in in in, in 1054, it obviously um, was used by God to ad- advance the 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 cause of the church because actually without it we couldn't have had the next. Uh, would have been unlikely that we would have seen the next schism in the church, which we today celebrate as mm-hmm. the Reformation. And again, we would qualify what we mean by celebrate. Uh, we don't mean that we rejoice in the fact that the uh, the, the Western Church, um, the the uh, what had become really the Roman Church, mm. uh, needed um, uh, re- it needed reform. And we don't rejoice in the fact that it resisted reform and that therefore there were Protestants and the Protestant church was was born. But we do thank God for the fact that through the Reformation, which let's face it was a schism in the church, different in character from, but mm-hmm. as necessary as the, the, the schism of 1054, um, it was a division in the church which led to uh, the advancement of the kingdom of God, and then even if you look at uh, more, you know, the more historically recent times. I mean, obviously, out of the Reformation, you had various kingdoms and dominions um, uh, in Western Europe. Eventually, it led to conflict between uh, those nations, um, but uh, eventually, it led to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight, the Glorious Revolution after the Pur- after following the Puritan Revolution. And which led on to the evangelical awakening, the 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 uh, the what we what we know as the Great Awakening, and again that was born of divisions within the church. I mean, the term Puritan, by the way, even in the seventeenth century, sixteenth century, seventeenth century was an insult. It was like a derogatory term. It wasn't yeah. oh wonderful Puritans, you know. It was an insult to Christians in yeah. the church who didn't believe the church was sufficiently reformed. And they are certainly, the Puritans are, are, are our evangelical forebears. They were dissatisfied with the extent of reform. So there was division there. Um, they wanted freedom for all the independent uh, churches. They didn't want an established Presbyterian church in England. Um, and then you had with the evangelical awakening, you had men like Whitfield and Wesley who were Anglicans and they went to the Anglican pulpits to preach an evangelical gospel and they were thrown out. So they didn't go to the fields because they thought, oh, wouldn't it be a great idea to start a new form of evangelism? Let's do Mm. open air services Mm. and open air evangelism because we want to stand there in the cold and in the wet and in the mud and do our evangelism there. No, they were pushed out of the church. And so they took to the fields um, and they preached the gospel there. And the result was revival and uh, awakening and then we could talk about other awakenings that followed in north america as well but the point is is when you look at god actually doing something in the history of the church we look at the great moments of change or transition in the history of the church it wasn't when everybody was sat around singing kumbaya and and, uh, uh, pretending truth didn't matter Mm. it was at moments when major critical issues were at stake around the nature and character of the gospel, the nature and character of the kingdom of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, uh, the the application actually too of the word of God to all of life. And that's why, you know, as 
Protestants, as Protestants, as evangelicals, we talk about the church always being in reform. We don't look back simply to the Reformation and say, oh, look, the Reformation, that was the moment. We don't need to do anything anymore. The Reformation's happened. No, we look back to the Reformation because we see faithful men who went back to the word of God and said, imperfectly and fallibly as they did, you know, the, the we're not being sufficiently faithful to the word of God in our lives and in the life of the church and in society, and we need reform. And so they went about that reform. Same with the evangelicals. And I think, Aaron, is it possible that um, we've come to a moment in, in Western culture and in the Western church where we've had, in a certain sense, since the end of World War II, we've been in the grip of a overt cultural revolution uh, against Christianity, against uh, the word of God. We've been repealing biblical law for 70 years. Uh, we've been having uh, neo-Marxist worldviews pumped through our institutions. In a certain sense, the church was able to get fat and flabby and hadn't thought about many critical issues uh, seriously for quite some period of time. We didn't feel the need to. We just felt comfortable that we lived in a broadly Christian culture. And so we had all kinds of movements about how to keep people in the church and how to be seeker sensitive and how to um, uh, make sure that we were planting fresh expressions of churches and so on. Um, but we weren't really being confronted with the threat of uh, ostracism, marginalization, persecution. Is it possible that we've come to another one of those moments where whilst we regret always as Christians there being divisions in the church over certain issues, what's your thoughts on whether we might have come to a moment now in the history of the church where in order for the church to move forward, certain lines need to be drawn? Well, obviously, the, the Reformation was largely a, a theological reformation over fundamental doctrines, you know, like the nature of our soteriology, what it means to be a child of God, you know, how a person is is spiritually born again. I don't think that the debate we're in right now is quite like that. There seems to be a fairly high level of theological unity between, let's say, our camp and those that would disagree with us. We all still believe in justification by grace through faith alone. We all are still Trinitarian. We affirm the virgin birth and so forth. But there have been some radical shifts in culture. You know, even in my own lifetime, I was born in the early 70s. I think when I was growing up, I still live in a, I still lived in a moderately Christianized culture. I mean, I distinctly remember uh, being with unbelievers when I was a young boy and they might point out a couple and say, hey, you know, that, that couple over there, they're kind of shacking up together. Like there was a disdain for fornication. We still prayed the Lord's Prayer in at Locke's Public School in St. Thomas, Ontario. We still had, I remember in grade five, I remember my teacher, I think it was Mr. Molnar, I can't remember exactly, opening the Bible for us in a public school and, and reading it to us in class. So there was a certain Christianization that still existed in culture. And within my lifetime, I think we've gone from that, and I'm not meaning these terms to be formal, but we've gone from that to a post-Christian culture. Now, I think it's pretty clear we're in an anti-Christian culture. And that's taken place just in a few few generations or a few decades. 
And probably the, the greatest obvious example of that in terms of statutes is Bill C-4, which I know you've covered on your show before, where while it does not name the Bible, it it identifies the 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 truth of scripture as mythological. You know, scripture is very clear in the opening chapters, God made them male and female. That's heterosexuality right there. And the, you know, Bill C4 declares the notion that that's normative, that that's that's the the preference as a, it declares that to be a myth. So we have we have that as an example. We have increased comfort uh, by the state to interfere in the worship and ministry of the church. I think I told this story before. I'm not sure if everyone's heard it, but the first time that I was charged, this would have been back in December, December the 20th, I think it was, of 2020 for opening my church. I mean, that, that was unprecedented in Canada. I'm not, I'm not sure in Canadian history if any pastor has been ever charged, had ever been charged prior to that for opening his church to, to worship. And the police sergeant that issued the ticket, this guy was a very big man. He was literally shaking in his boots, literally shaking in his boots. Not a believer, but I think in in his deep consciousness, he realized that there's something wrong about this. There's something unprecedented about this. Well, within a few months, that almost became weekly news. So such and such has got another ticket and this guy over here has got another ticket. And, you know, half the pastors in the country that have stood up now have tickets. It's like, what, whatever, it's normal now. So when that that floodgate opened, it, it opened quite wide. And I use that as an example of how we there was a certain, I, I think, a respect for the church. And it appears to me that that has been completely eroded in, in less than two years. So as we fight back against statism, we're, we're not fighting right now for purity of doctrine in the area of what it means to be regenerated or what, what conversion is. We, we agree with our opponents on that. I mean, I mean not, the, not the, the radical leftist churches, but I mean those that are within evangelicalism, we, agree, we still agree with them on that. But right now we're confronted with a cultural crisis. And I see it fundamentally as an issue of authority. Who has authority over all of life? And under our current regime, it's very clear that the state has postured itself in such a way. And I'm not talking about just the federal state. I'm talking about the provincial state, the municipal state. They all see themselves as having authority over the worship and ministry of the church, over the education of your children, Apparently now over who you donate your money to, if you donate your money to a bunch of people that are having a block party in Ottawa, you're considered a domestic terrorist practically. So increasingly, this, the beast of the state is, is growing larger and larger, and it's, it's, it's essentially it declared itself to be God over all of life. This is why I've, I've said several times, a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with the idea of a theocracy. Well, I think it's unavoidable. No matter where you're living, no matter what culture, no matter what country, no matter what nation you're part of, you are living under a theocracy. Somebody wants to be ultimately in charge. And in the Canadian state, the the, the God of the Canadian state is the government. And they have utilized this pandemic to 
reveal their true colors. They see themselves. They're very comfortable uh, having authority over the church, over all of life, and it just continues to move forward. So I, I don't see how you can avoid having substantive conflict with other Christians who are comfortable with the notion that the state can control the ministry and worship of the church. There's necessarily going to be division on that. There's division, by the way, I'll, I'll say this, Joe, there's, there's division in families over this. And there's, there, there's division in human families over this. Well, there's definitely going to be division in, in churches over this issue. It's not intended. No one wants this. We're not looking to, you know, at, at times we poke at our opponents because, frankly, some of their comments are asinine. And we may mock the odd comment that is ridiculous, but I, I we have tried, I know I have tried, especially early on, I don't spend a great deal of my energy trying to win over people that clearly are not going to be won over, but we tried early on to have conversations with significant evangelical leaders uh, in our own province and across our country. Uh, there was some hope at the beginning, but clearly there has been a divide. They've doubled down on what I would call status, their statist views. And um, it's just necessarily caused some division. It's not intended, but it's, it's the reality of it. So as you mentioned, the Protestant Reformation at the time was painful, but in hindsight, it was a good thing. The events surrounding the Great Awakening, you know, the, 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 the departure of the Puritans from England and the Netherlands to North America, I'm sure there was a lot of pain involved in that but ultimately it led to the kind of reform that God has blessed and through which he has continued to bring great glory to himself, which is, by the way, the end goal of Jesus' prayer, high priestly prayer for unity in John 17. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it, uh, it's interesting that you went to John 17 because I had John 17 open in front of me at the beginning of this uh, podcast and you wouldn't have been able to see that from there. Um, okay. But it's interesting that uh, in that remarkable prayer, Jesus talks there in verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And in verse 21, he says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. It seems to me that there's there's a, there's a couple of important things there. First of all, this is a church. This is a, this is a this is a body of Christ. Actually, not just the institutional church. And here's where a lot of confusion comes in. But here, here's the body of Christ on mission in the world. Mm -hmm. So there is so so th there is. Um, there is a desire there that in 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 the mission in in our mission in the world we're sent into the world, there would be unity. And that unity is in the truth. And as you've said, I don't see how it's possible to avoid substantive disagreement um, on some of these critical issues. Uh, is it even possible to avoid the charge of, 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 of being divisive when this is a fundamental issue about the truth? And I think you've rightly identified the issue you talk about the issue of authority i think we could also mm -hmm. use we could replace that word equally with sovereignty where does where does ultimate sovereignty uh, lie um in in each area of life 
And um, I think we can have respectful dialogue and disagreement. Like you mentioned, we sought that uh, early on. It was very, very difficult to come by. And, um, you know, I think sometimes there's a danger when people are calling for unity and charging others with being divisive is there can be a very passive aggressive element to that uh, when, because in order for there to, to, to forge unity, you need unity in the midst of unity presupposes a diversity, right? So um, there, those concepts are involved in one another. Mm. And if you don't allow a diversity of opinion to the table to have the discussion, to hash it out, um, any unity that you are supposedly getting or establishing is only a unity that's by some kind of coercion, some sort of force. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of an intolerant call for tolerance. Um, so that if you say anything or challenge or put something else forward, you're automatically divisive if you if if the dialogue or the debate won't be engaged. And I think there's a almost an interesting and perhaps a slightly disturbing parallel with mm-hmm. our prime minister right now, right. where you've got these uh, uh, these Canadian citizens, thousands of them, uh, in Ottawa, who. Um, don't agree with what's happening. They're concerned for their constitutional freedoms and their liberties. Uh, They're concerned actually very clearly about the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And yet political leadership is saying uh, they are divisive. This is not who Canada is. These aren't really Canadians in that sense. Unacceptable views. They've got unacceptable views. Mm -hmm. We're not going to talk to them. We're not going to listen to them. We can't give them the mic. Uh, We're not going to debate this issue with them. And because we believe in unity and tolerance, we're going to invoke uh, the Emergencies Act (laughs) to make sure that their dissent, their protestants, their their protest Mm. is shut down. And um, there seems to be there a bit of a disturbing parallel to the way sometimes we're approaching these discussions supposedly in the church is that instead of saying these are these are brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. fellow citizens in the faith uh, who are raising critical issues that have not been confronted by the church in generations. Critical issues. Critical not, issues. Not vital. They're not peripheral. Mm. Yeah. These are critical issues. What does it mean for the church to be to, to enjoy freedom? Right. What what is the freedom of the church? Right. Uh, what is the what is the role and authority of um, church leadership uh, in relation to state leadership? What does it What does it mean for the church to be shut out of baptism and the Lord's Supper and praying for the mm-hmm. sick and ordaining elders and gathering for worship indefinitely by the state um, and so on? These are these are not peripheral questions. These are central. Mm-hmm questions to the very because because in fact the people of god are part of the message of the gospel the gospel isn't some sort of abstract set of of doc precept assumptions propositions to simply be believed it involves the declaration of a people we are a new people in the lord jesus christ we are the body of christ and so you become part of a body you come to the lord's table you participate in his body you gather around his word that's part of the meaning of the gospel of the kingdom so these are not peripheral issues these are central issues they need to be debated discussed openly in the midst of the evangelical community that's not really been allowed to happen by our as you said Aaron by what I think we can really call our opponents and in the name of unity and not being divisive 
they don't speak to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is there, uh, uh, what are your thoughts about that, about the relationship of what we're seeing to in, in the prime minister right now, culturally, because it seems to me interesting. It's a very secular perspective, the way in which, uh, the, the call for unity results in an incredible intolerance and then false charges against uh, other people, in one case fellow Canadians, in, in another case fellow believers. Well, we've seen this with the Prime Minister. I also saw it, unfortunately, with the Mayor of Windsor here during the uh, Windsor protest. The, the fact of the matter is, is that no elected official has engaged in negotiation with the protesters at either end of the province. In Windsor here, when the bridge was partially shut down for a brief period, fully shut down, the mayor went on the news and said, you know, there was a lot of people down there with mental issues. Well, this doesn't exact, this isn't the kind of language that exactly solicits uh, goodwill and uh, opens the door for dialogue. I, I was saying in another podcast today that the amount of money that the state spent sending a couple hundred police officers, armored vehicles, erecting barricades, on and on and on in to push out these protesters, I would say I'm probably 95 to 99% convinced that I could have brokered a deal with some of the key influencers at the Windsor blockade and the authorities to at least come halfway, you know, maybe open part of the bridge, kind of take the pressure off some of the the trucks that wanted to cross, put the pressure on the Ford government to make substantive changes, put the pressure on Trudeau. But the dialogue, there was some dialogue between a couple of very kind police officers and a couple of the influencers in the protest movement, but the mayor, the premier, the prime minister have created disunity by name calling, hurling insults, even fabricating, fabricating insults, you know, calling people racists. You you guys all heard that, Islamophobes, misogynists, etc., toward the people that are simply asking for their God-given inherited liberties back. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty basic ask. And actually, you shouldn't even have to ask for that because those aren't granted by the state. So that kind of uh, posturing and uh, divisive rhetoric isn't helpful. Now, I know there's a well-known satire organization going around, which, you know, for, for the record, I don't know who runs it. I'm not part of it. I know, Joe, you're in the same boat as me. We have our opponents saying, oh, you guys are fostering division because you're you know, encouraging this. First of all, we're not encouraging it. Some of it is admittedly hilarious, okay? It's admittedly <laughs> hilarious because it exposes some of the most ridiculous comments that have been made by some of our opponents. Shameful comments. You, you should feel ashamed. You should be embarrassed by some of the comments you've made. But our goal is not to inflame. Our goal is not to ridicule. That's not our goal. Frankly, I don't even think that much about my opponents. Okay. You're you're not the first people I think about when I wake up in the morning, the last person I think of before I go to bed. I'm trying to pastor my church. 
I'm trying to influence culture. I'm trying to speak out against tyranny. Um, there's naturally been some hard feelings that have that have arisen because of that. But I would say from our end, because frankly, we are in the minority still among broader Christian, you know, broader even reformed evangelicalism in Canada. We are we still are the minority. The I think our sentiment in many respects is that our opponents have actually been used against us by the state to punish us, and their silence has been used to justify some of the tyrannical punishments that have been levied out against pastors that have tried to open their churches. Have people left churches because of that? Yes, they've left both directions. Now, I would say that churches that have stayed open and opposed the state tend to be growing more rapidly simply because we're the minority and the majority are closed half the time. So you're, you're going to have people looking for, for, for churches to go to. But our, our, goal is not, our goal is not to divide, but the division we're seeing is sort of a necessary consequence of this substantive issue we're fighting against, which is statism, totalitarianism. It's evil. And the kind of rhetoric, the kind of uh, divisive, dismissive rhetoric that we see from folks in highest offices of our land, I mean, we've, we've experienced that from some of our opponents as well. Uh, just one, you know, one final thought, the door is open. You know, the, 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 phone, uh, the phone is available if, if those that are opposed to us want to have uh, dialogue, reconciliation. I mean, I would certainly welcome that, but I can tell you straight up, one thing I will never sacrifice is my belief that Christ is the absolute Lord of the church and if you don't believe that, you are actually sinning against the body of Christ. Uh, it's it's a it's fundamental to the identity of the church to declare that Christ is the Lord over the church, over the ministry of the church, and we will not surrender that to 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 any man. And in the um, in that uh, in that uh, process, Aaron, I'm I'm glad you've um, so. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree and concur with what you've said there. And uh, you're right that we find ourselves, I find myself in the same position as you with um, all of this. Um, some will say, well, uh, you know, Aaron, yes, uh, you want to talk about Christ as Lord of the church. And by the way, I mean, as you know, I drafted the Niagara Declaration and, and had your uh, assistance with that um uh with uh, uh, several others and and we had conversations with some of these uh leaders at that time and um they initially seemed to be warm and then you know we discover a short while down the track that you know um there are there are leaders speaking against the niagara declaration from 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 these movements to various pastors um without telling us we had the reopen ontario churches um campaign that you and i push forward uh, together and won something of a, I think, a victory for the churches there to, to, to get open. And yet we're still having people say, stay in lane, Aaron. Mm -hmm. But you, you, you're out of lane. I mean, okay, you want to say that Jesus is Lord, but, you know, the lane, the lane for us, we can't comment on um, epidemiology and the law right. and politics mm -hmm. and things like that. We're just pastors. Stay in lane. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a few thoughts on that, but before I, I, I talk about, reflect on my thoughts on it, have you got anything to, 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 to say about that? And yes, the, the door is open 
the, the door of conversation is open to all of these people, remains open. Um, and, uh, you know, as you know, um, efforts were made even with the, with the, with the, with the responsiveness to requests for articles that uh, we responded to that then weren't, that weren't then published. They, they, there was a refusal to then publish the, the opposite side, the opposing side of the question. Um, and is it, and part of that is stay in lane. You guys are out of lane. How, how do you respond to the notion that somehow Pastor Aaron Rock, when he stands for freedom and he's, he steps into the uh, the pulpit and declares certain things that have political implications, that you're out of lane? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and actually, Aaron, just before you answer that, uh, just uh, yeah. because this is something we deal with at the Institute a lot, we hear stay in lane, but we also hear focus on the gospel. Yeah. That's another one that's repeated over and over. And I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. But really what I see is pastors, in many cases, uh, do not possess a robust Christian worldview. So when their congregations begin to try to work through education, medicine, COVID, politics, whatever, their authority feels slightly threatened. So then they, they... often want to initiate their own version of the emergency act and stomp out right. all this conversation. So they, they feel they've regained their authority, but mm-hmm. sorry to jump in there, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, no problem. So I, w- I want to make a preliminary comment before I get into this com- conversation about the, the stay in your lane allegation. I, I honestly think there's a lot of evidence out there now that some there's, there's some pastors that are simply doubling down strictly because of male ego. It seems quite clear. So the historical record will show that Joe Boot and Aaron Rock and others met with the provincial government in the spring of 2020 and reopened, negotiated the reopening of churches with our lawyers and with some members of the Orthodox Jewish community, reopened our churches by putting pressure on the Ford government and issuing a clear threat. That's the historical record. Now, that doesn't mean we're, you know, we deserve extra big crowns in heaven. And I'm not saying that to seek the applause of men, but that's the historical record. That's a fact. And yet, even when that happened, even when that happened, many of our opponents still thanked publicly Doug Ford for his benevolence and failed to acknowledge our efforts in that regard. My brother, uh, sent me a, um, a screenshot of a, a local pastor here in Windsor. I, I don't follow him. I don't see this myself, but he he's doubled down as well. He, he wrote here, all indoor gathering limits in Ontario will be removed March 1st, along with the Vax Pass system. Ford was sure to say this was the plan all along and recent protests were not a factor. I mean, you have to be pretty obtuse to how politics works and even if you believe that, why say it? I, 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 because these men are trying to double down. They, they're, they're refusing to admit that when you put pressure on a state, a state changes its mind because they're not principled people. They're pragmatists. They're trying to get reelected. If, if at this point you still think this is about stopping a virus, something is severely wrong with you. It's severely wrong with you. This, it's, it's clear now there's an agenda that Trudeau has, he will not step out of that parliament building. He will not have a single conversation with the truckers. He he cajoles, he threatens for a period of time he was hiding. 
you know, where's Trudeau became the new fad there in, uh, in Ottawa. It used to be where's Waldo, you know, the game where's Waldo. Nobody could find Trudeau. He's, he's stonewalled. He's hidden. He's thrown insults. He's brought out bigger and bigger hammers from his toolbox to try to hammer the protesters. And I would just suggest, hey, why don't you go out and have a conversation, a conversation. But ego forbids that. Ego forbids that. And I really think some guys need to do a serious checking of the soul before God. If you're still continuing to promote the status agenda and it's because of your ego, you're sinning. You need to cut it out. You need to smarten up. So that's my one comment. You know, with regard to staying in your lane, um, well, if that means stay on the shoulder, you know, the gravel shoulder, out of the traffic, you know, out of the flow, uh, and, and not provide any any direction to people, I, I'm I'm not prepared to do that. You know, if, if you if you see, if you think of this, if you take this analogy of stay in your lane and you you view it as a super highway with multiple lanes, and on that road, there's law, and then there's this another lane, politics, and then there's you know, economics and there's medicine and education and family and church, the institutional church and all these different aspects that make up culture. We want that in all of those lanes moving in the direction. We want to be pushing the traffic in all of those lanes toward an acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ. This is what we want. And so, you know, we, we're, we're in different lanes. You know, sometimes we're in the, the medical lane and we're like, hey, you need, to, you need to acknowledge the lordship of Christ. And sometimes we're in the economy lane. You need to acknowledge the lordship of Christ and the way you set up economic structures. The Bible has something to say about that. We kindly remind the courts, you know, we need to push the, the legal system in the direction of acknowledging the lordship of Christ. Everybody wins when that happens. But what I'm sadly seeing many of many people in the church today do is they just kind of stay on the shoulder and they sort of hope that someone pulls over at some point in time and wants to have a conversation with them about the gospel. And uh, instead of getting out in the traffic and trying to affect change in all these different aspects of life, they just stay on the shoulder. They, 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 they form these little holy huddles. They, they hide out of view. And the message that they are communicating on the shoulder is central to the gospel, but it's actually a very truncated view of the gospel. The, the message essentially is, and you know, many of us grew up in evangelical churches where, you know, you'd have altar calls, you'd have some rousing hellfire and brimstone sermon, and you'd be told, you know, you're a sinner, which we are. And you need to, you're, you're going to go to hell if you don't trust in, in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. And, you know, you deserve, you deserve to be punished, but Jesus Christ is the eternal God who came into this world and fully man, fully God and died on a cross for our sins and was resurrected on the third day. And we need to trust in him and him alone for our salvation. And when we do, we're spiritually regenerated. That's all true. That's, that's fundamental to our conversion. But the gospel isn't just about you getting fire insurance from hell, getting, you know, getting your, get a hell free card. The gospel is about the, the kingship, the lordship of Christ over all of creation. From beginning to end, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. That's how the Bible starts and that's how the Bible ends. And those, and those that acknowledge that. In the, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray that your, your kingdom would come to this earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean, if not minimally, that the lordship of Christ would be recognized in this world? So... 
this this strange notion that the gospel is just about you. It's actually quite a selfish gospel. It's just about you. It's just about Jesus helping you, getting you getting you your ticket to heaven and your and your your um, your sins forgiven. It's that's not a that's not a vertical uh, understanding of the whole gospel. The whole gospel, yes, you you need to get saved. You need to trust in Christ. You need to be born again. You need to put your faith in Him and Him alone for your salvation. Not in kings and chariots and horses, but in in the in the living loving Lord Jesus. But the whole of the gospel is about the kingship of Christ over creation. So I, I would say in summary that if a person says stay in your lane, and what they mean by that is just preach the conversion aspect of the gospel, they have a truncated gospel. And the final comment I'll make is much of this resistance that we experience to bringing the gospel to bear on the different spheres of culture and life is fundamentally built off of a, a, a lie, the lie of secular, secularism being spiritually neutral. The lie that you can actually live in sort of a spiritually neutral state. Um, every, every institution imaginable on planet Earth today appeals to some source of authority for its very existence, for its very recognition. And we want to see every institution and every aspect and facet of culture appeal to the Lordship of Christ as their ultimate authority. So in a secular state, it's not like, well, live and let live. Everybody sort of gets a free chance to worship whatever God they want. No, someone's going to rise up and try to control all of life. We believe that the best person to control all of life is the creator, who also happens to be benevolent, by the way. So following him is, is a good thing. We want to see all of life come under the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us have more pessimistic eschatologies. Some of us have more optimistic eschatologies in terms of how that ends. But where we find our unity is ultimately Christ. I mean, Christ has already won, but ultimately it's going to be super obvious that he's won. And all will bow at the feet of Christ and acknowledge him as their king unto eternal life or acknowledge him as their king unto eternal death. But in the end of the day, everyone will come face to face with the knowledge that Christ is Lord. He's the king of kings. And so why wouldn't we want to bring his lordship to bear on all aspects of life instead of allowing usurpers to slip in and, and, and rule, let's say, that the medical establishment or the legal establishment or the political establishment, et cetera? Mm -hmm. That's... Um... That's a really good question because sometimes it it does uh, it does boggle the mind as to why we wouldn't want the the word of the Creator and Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and His kingdom ruling and reigning and established uh, in people's hearts and lives and in every aspect of of life. There's a you've you've talked there about some. Uh, sort of theological issues and and also some of the um some of the sort of existential questions as well about pride and those kinds of things that can get in the way sometimes for all of us of acknowledging when we're wrong or we've made a mistake and um and our ego is getting in the way and so on um what i wanted to do as we sort of wrap this up is ma is maybe talk just a little bit 
and uh, I think you've applied it very well already, Aaron, especially with some of those illustrations that you've given. But um, reflect a little bit on the on the the root of this and and why it's been and remains a persistent problem in Christian thinking to have this kind of dualism that you've talked about that there's one part of the world for Jesus, one part of life for Christ, and and the rest is somehow secular, is for some other God, and is to be ruled by some other God, and that we would be somehow comfortable with that. Well, just to pick up uh, the uh, the metaphor of staying in your lane and Aaron's uh, extension of that to multiple lanes of a highway, mm-hmm. that's like that's like saying there are, you've got multiple lanes, but each lane might go in either direction at any given time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Or veer off. Right. Uh, on a slip road. Yeah. Uh, what do we call that? An off-ramp. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, and, and you got people going here, there, and everywhere. And I think, um, and this would be a very, just very much a whistle-stop tour, but part of the problem is that, it, and we see it even in the Church Fathers, and it's widely acknowledged now that because of the influence of Greek thought or Greek dualism, We've talked a lot on this show before about the whole form matter mm-hmm. motive of the Greeks, a dualistic understanding of reality, um, where you've got the, the 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 sort of the notion of a of a of a rational immortal soul in a material body that's lesser, um, and uh, the, the the challenge that this immediately introduced for for Christians who in trying to perhaps at times accommodate the Christian message of creation, fall, and redemption to this Greek understanding of these eternal opposing principles of form and matter, um, that we couldn't even think straight about marriage and human sexuality. Hmm. And of course, the problem for the much of the early church was how do you wrestle with the question of human sexuality, marriage, um, the association of sex itself with sin, the body is lesser, it's lower. And of course, we see Paul having to um, ward off even the Gnostics in the, in, in, in the New Testament uh, period, but in the in the in the medieval church, you see asceticism developing. So that first kind of retreatism is expressed in, um, and you know we ha- we have things to be thankful for within the monastic movement. But this rejection of life, mm-hmm. of marriage, mm-hmm. of sexuality, of, of family, um, of the good things, of all the blessings that God gives within creation, there's a fundamental rejection of it as lesser, lower, and you know being cloistered. And that's what we get the term, a cloister, uh, for prayer and, and with a rope tied around your waist in, in sackcloth. I remember as a Christian very early in my life as a, as a teenager because I, I loved the Lord. I wanted to serve him. I loved the gospel. And I remember thinking, look, if I really want to serve the Lord, perhaps I do need to become some kind of a monk. I mean, are there evangelical orders, right? Yeah. Because I really loved the Lord and I really wanted to serve him. And I remember reading this book. It was it was a, it was a booklet actually. It was like a, a monograph, monograph, a, slow, a short monograph on uh, the monastic orders, and there was a certain appeal of that for, for that to me. Not because I didn't like girls, because I really did, um, but because I also really wanted to serve the Lord, and um, uh, the 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 interest in that monastic I didn't didn't last long, thankfully, um, but. <laughs> Um, that tension was there because it was fundamental to this this sort of um, dualistic uh, view. 
and the the church has been wrestling with that this and it's it's produced for us a number of distinctions that will be very familiar with 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 uh, to our listeners this division of life into separate domains so within western culture we have this radical body soul division which the Bible doesn't uh, uh, recognize. It sees the heart, we've talked about this before on the show, sometimes called the soul in the Bible, as the root, the unity, the root yeah. unity of the human person before all these different functions of our lives. The core of who we are, the I, the I-ness, is the heart, that indivisible unity of the human person. The Bible talks about an inner and an outer man, the bit that you can see and the bit you can't see. But it doesn't allow for this Greek radical distinction of the soul as some sort of abstracted set of functions that are going to survive your death, like your reason and your will somehow, and everything else is lesser or disposable. So that you get the impression with some Christians that the resurrection is you just about escaping this earth with a body. Um, And so... This is the importance, of course, of both Christ's incarnation and his physical resurrection, because it's a full affirmation of the fullness of creation and the unity of the human person. A human being is an inner and outer person fully embodied. Um, So we have that radical soul-body distinction. We have the material-spiritual distinction. So we say, well, the spiritual disciplines, we talk about that. That's really important. Um, And we're in this, we're in the Christian life is an inner battle we're told only um, against this lower part of us, which stems from the body, which is the material aspect, right? So that's lesser, that's lower. Um, and of course, for the Greeks, and again, for even for some of the scholastics, um, you you actually have this very interesting notion that God is, when, when every new person is born, when Aaron Rock was born into this world, that God created a new soul, and dropped it down into a material body, right? That's being created in the womb. Um, And of course, you've got immediately, you've got a problem. Is that soul fallen? If so, uh, is God creating sinful souls? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? This is a question that theologians have had to, uh, have had to wrestle with and, 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 and try and think through. And so sin gets quickly associated with the material, with the lower part, with the body. And the soul or your inner life gets associated with this higher level of existence, which for them, you know, human reason, uh, human thinking, um, this was good and fine as far as it went. And so there was an attempt to synthesize Greek philosophy with Christianity. And the basic idea was that grace was a, was an addition. It was a super addition. It was an add-on to uh, your, um, your, your, your rational soul, your immortal rational soul, which was okay as far as it went, but it needed the gift by grace of faith uh, to, to bring it to salvation. But there wasn't the, they didn't fully understand the radicality of the fall. So we have this material spiritual. We see it in the nature, supernature. So Christianity, we're told, is about the supernatural world beyond this one, but not really about creation and culture. That gives you your public-private dichotomy. So you have your spiritual life of faith. That's a private matter for you, Aaron Rock, Joe Boot, Ryan Harris, uh, Nathan. That's your private life, but that's not for the public space mm-hmm. because your private faith doesn't isn't publicly accessible knowledge. 
Um, and then that gives you your secular, sacred divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, secular, neutral principles that Aaron mentioned that everybody can agree on. So politics, education, law, the sciences, these are secular areas. They're governed by, by common reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they're governed by common reason, the church is a sacred institution of grace. That's ruled by biblical revelation, yes. Mm-hmm. But biblical revelation doesn't rule the school or the state or or culture because that's that different realm that's that material realm and so you don't try and mix the upper and lower story uh, the the law gospel distinctions involved with that right law is for the earth mm-hmm. it's for the lower material realm grace dispenses with law doesn't need law any more than heaven needs earth right you, you we're now under grace we're not under the law that's a misused passage um, so we have common and special revelation distinction. So we don't see Christ as being fundamentally the one who gives that creation or what we might call common revelation. That uh, moves further into a reason revolution, uh, rev- uh, revelation distinction as well. So reason is said to give you sufficient understanding for most of life to guide politics, education, culture, and so on in terms of neutral principles. Revelation is for the soul. That's what admits you to eternal salvation through faith. So if you've got a reason revelation split, well, now you have a science and faith split as well. So follow the science. Don't you believe in science? Follow the science. Science, that's objective, natural reason that concerns this religiously neutral sphere of knowledge. Faith is unrelated to reason and is only concerned with the higher value judgments and so on. And so the only Christian academic discipline is theology mm-hmm. because that's the study of faith. So you can't now have a Christian pr- approach to the sciences or to the humanities because it's not, it's simply not for that. And that gives you then your kingdom culture divide, which where we end, which is what uh, Aaron mentioned, which is the kingdom of God then is associated only with the upper story with the church, right. the church institute. Right. So instead of the kingdom of God being about the body of Christ with regenerated hearts, that's the root of our existence, applied to every area of life, so that all of life concerns thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Only the church, churchianity, not Christianity, the church is the area of the kingdom. And therefore you have, you mentioned, Nathan, that sense of pastors jealously guarding their Mm -hmm. sense of authority over Christianity Mm -hmm. within the church, um, saying, well, that's their domain. That's the domain of theology only. Mm -hmm. And it's the domain of the pastor. This is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God only grows by planting churches and pastors sending out pastors. And so you have this radically truncated view of the gospel of the kingdom. You have a radically truncated view of the kingdom of God. And you've got to stay in your lane. Don't get into all of these other lanes because the kingdom of God is only in this lane. And it's rooted, and that's the reason I've done that whistle-stop tour from a worldview point of view, these, these dualisms that we see in our culture that have persisted in the church, it's rooted in a false Greek idea of reality, ultimately, of cosmology, of form matter, and ultimately of false anthropology, a false understanding of the human person. Mm. Instead of seeing the human person as a unity, and that unity is found in the heart, the very center of who we are, a sort of pre-functional uh, uh, heart and, and and all our you know our thinking our reasoning our our, our doings in every aspect of life life are the functions ultimately of the heart which is the root of the person 
When that heart is transformed, it's not just our emotions, when that heart is transformed, when we regenerate, it affects every single aspect of our lives. Everything is transformed, not just church life or spiritual disciplines. And that's what's liberating for some of these truckers who've written mm-hmm. to us, right, mm-hmm. and have told us, you know, mm-hmm. that this is, a, this is a Christian faith that they can understand that actually yeah. their trucking mm-hmm. matters. And hey, that's look how right. it's making, look how it matters now, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. That the, the driving a truck and being a father and leading your family and being in business and being in law and politics, and the, this matters for the kingdom of God because as the body of Christ in all of life, not just in the church institute, we're applying the fullness of the word of God. This is an undivided life, a non-schizophrenic existence where all of life is brought under the lordship of Christ with unity of heart and purpose in everything. Mm. And I think this struggle that's going on right now, Aaron, is fundamentally about this, and it's the struggle that's in the church. You talked about the struggle of authority, sovereignty. It, it fundamentally comes down to this question of can we serve Christ uh, in unity of heart and purpose in all of life, or must the gospel and the lordship of Christ be limited to one human institution? Hmm. That's really good. I, I enjoy uh, hearing you you remind us of those kind of those deep philosophical and theological um, foundation stones to you know to our to our world and life view. Um, obviously human beings have constituent elements, you know, we have, we're body, soul, and spirit, but we're, we're unified. Obviously there's an invisible realm and a visible realm, but it's unified, you know, in, in Colossians chapter one, it talks about Christ being Lord over the visible and the invisible. And that includes all the thrones and dominions and powers and authority. So we, we acknowledge there are things we can tangibly hold on to and things we can't tangibly hold on to. One of the greatest illustrations of this that came to my mind as you were talking is marriage. You know, you, you might ask someone about uh, sex. You know, is sex a physical act or is it a spiritual act? Well, it's both. Is it an emotional act or a social act? It's both. Does it have a biological purpose to it? Yes. It creates, it's through that act that children are created. You know, marriage and the union that a man and woman have together in sexual intercourse is, in some respects, the fountainhead of culture. This is how babies are created. It's a physical act. There is physical pleasure involved in that. But from a Christian perspective, there is a deeper unity there. There's a, there's a spiritual unity. There's an emotional oneness. And this is why in Ephesians chapter 5, marriage becomes the choice metaphor for the gospel of Jesus Christ, where in the roles we play as husband and wife, we put the fullness of the gospel on display. So there is a radical difference between a a marriage that has as its head the Lord Jesus Christ and a marriage that has 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 left Christ out. There's a there's a likewise there's a radical difference between a, a state that has Christ as head of government and a state that has left Christ out. There, within that state, there's a radical difference between an e- economy that is rooted in biblical law, in the lordship of Christ, versus you know, selfishness, the secular worldview. Um, 
so we do see we do see on on many levels i think there's an acknowledgement that there's there's material and immaterial that's true but there is a unity that we want to see people acknowledge between in in and among those realms and we want to bring the spiritual truths of scripture to bear upon the practical realities of everyday life again marriage law economics politics the way we raise our children um, instead of that radical dualism which you you identified i think that's very you know deadly in the life of the church i'll admit that's how i was raised you know when i was a child i was just told the gospels about getting ready for for eternity and um, christians don't don't speak to political issues. And the public school is the best place to go because it's spiritually neutral. <laughs> well, pardon the pun, but those masks have been ripped clean off. And it's very evident that these are institutions and aspects of culture that are loaded to the brim with godless ideologies, with antichrist ideologies. I'll just say one final thing, Joe and Nate and Ryan. I think... I think there's a, obviously we're talking theology, we're talking philosophy, but there's a very real pastoral concern here that we need to remind people of. And that is that until Christ is acknowledged within these different spheres of authority in the world, these different aspects of culture um, within the, you know, the Christian worldview, people suffer. People suffer when Christ is left out of economics. People suffer when Christ is is left out of conversations about ultimate authority. You, you end up with tyrants that think they have they're not accountable to anybody. You end up with um, inflation and bankruptcy and theft and the destruction of economies when Christ is left out of conversations about economics. You end up with imbalance when Christ is left out of discussions about how to handle a viral outbreak. You end up with imbalance. You end up with destructive ideologies. But when Christ is acknowledged, ultimately we want people to all come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But but even if they don't, when Christ is acknowledged in all the spheres of life, there's a reduction of evil. There's an extension of life. There's a greater peace there is blessing and benefit to the nations. And, and this is why historically, the more Christian a country was in its worldview and culture, the more apt people from other countries that didn't have that worldview wanted to move here. Nobody wants to move to China. Nobody's scrambling to buy air, airplane tickets to move to Saudi Arabia. People want to come to countries that historically recognize the, 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 the supremacy of God and his laws over culture because they actually work. Surprise, surprise. They actually work. They actually bring blessing to the nation. So that's just kind of another element that I often think about, just this very practical reality. When, when we obey what God has said, predicated upon the belief that God is good and everything he said is, says is good and beneficial because he's benevolent, People are blessed by that mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Even if it's only in the in in the, in the temporal realm, they're blessed by that. Yeah, when when uh, we often say on 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 the show that when we walk in terms of the fullness of God's law word for all of creation, 
that's when we experience the fullness of life that Jesus mm-hmm. came to talk about. If we move in an apostate, there's only two directions. There's many structures, but only two directions, apostasy mm-hmm. or faithfulness. And um, as uh, we often think about what Henry Van Til said, that culture is religion externalized. Mm-hmm. It's religion externalized. It's our faith applied. That's all it is. So if we're going to uh, apply the faith, um, it's going to be expressed through our bodies into every aspect of life. Mm-hmm. Let's conclude with this thought in Romans 12 that came to me while you were speaking, Aaron, uh, when we talk about the unity of the Christian life. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron, one of the things that you uh, you mentioned early on in our, uh, our conversation is that uh, the current divide that we're experiencing between... Uh, some of our uh, some of our brothers who would who would be identified as opponents at this point is that uh, that current divide is not expressly doctrinal or theological, mm-hmm. uh, but it does have obvious and immediate theological implications, and those theological right. implications have immediate application to every other area of life as we've uh, just spent this past hour fleshing out, and it's just. Uh, it's fascinating, fascinating to circle back to this idea of authority as a worship issue. Mm-hmm. So, mm. Aaron, I'll, uh, yeah. I'm really, really grateful that uh, you were able to join us today. Uh, appreciate your insight, appreciate your, your faithfulness and your, uh, your stand. And we'll look, uh, we'll look forward to chatting again with you re- really soon. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for the opportunity. All right. Well, from all of us here at the Ezra Institute, this has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation. And we remind you that uh, from him and through him and to him, and that's Jesus Christ, our King, are all things. To God be the glory, and we'll be with you again next week.